Welcome. You are listening to Aftersight. This recording is intended solely for individuals who are blind or have low vision. Hello, and thank you for joining us for Catholic News. My name is Chris Mahalik. The source of our program is denvercatholic.org. Archbishop's March Prayer Intention For those entering the Church, that their hearts be open to a divine encounter by the Denver Catholic staff. Archbishop Samuel J. Aquila's prayer intention for March is for those who will be entering the church at Easter, that their hearts may be open to a deeper, to a deep encounter with the divine mysteries. Brothers and sisters, what then shall we say? Shall we persist in sin that grace may abound? Of course not. How can we who died to sin yet live in it? Are you unaware that we who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were indeed buried with him through baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might live in newness of life. Spring is a time of new life. Trees are beautified with new leaves and branches. Meadows turn green with various plants and colorful flowers, and the cold, dry winter dies off. Even the birds in the sky delight us with their wonderful melodies. All of this is beautiful, almost poetic, because it is the work of the Creator God, who constantly renews it, bringing joy to our hearts and filling us with happiness. During spring, we also celebrate Easter every year, marking the new life that Jesus Christ came to bring us. Just like every year, the church, the church welcomes new members in the church, people who have been called and prepared to enter the life of Christ through the door of faith, conversion, and the sacraments of Christian initiation. The church receives them with the joy of Easter, the joy experienced with the new life that only Jesus Christ can offer to those who open wide the doors of their hearts in the Easter celebration. Jesus Christ takes the initiative, knocking on the door of each heart, asking us to let him in. Through a long process of preparation and a change of mindset via catechesis that enlightens reason and understanding our brothers and sisters finally open their hearts to receive God, the source of true happiness. Once they have passed through the purification of their past life through baptism, a person becomes a living temple of God with all its treasures and divine mysteries. Then new life blossoms to give glory to, the, to God the Father. The Holy Spirit acts so that the person may have a profound personal encounter with the risen Christ, transforming their previous life as he gradually reveals the mysteries of his kingdom. Just as trees, meadows, and forests transform, filling everything with happiness, when we experience the liturgy of Easter, we realize that God loves us deeply and wants to demonstrate it the personal encounter that changes the life of any of any human being, regardless of their sinful past and regardless of whether they feel worthy of this new life. Just as trees reject their old leaves and branches to receive the new ones in spring, 
Our new members entering Christian life at Easter must renounce the slavery of sin and all the dead works of sin to receive the new life with all its divine mysteries. For our new catechumens, know that you will not embark on this new life alone. The prayer and support of the Church are crucial, and she will always accompany you in the new journey of faith. The Archbishop invites all the faithful to join him in prayer throughout March. For those who will be entering the Church at Easter, that their hearts may be open to a deep encounter with the divine mysteries. May our Lord Jesus Christ pour abundant graces upon each of those who will become new members of the Catholic Church by the grace of God. The hope and desire are that their lives may be like the most beautiful blooming meadows in spring, full of happiness from the newness of life. For the glory of God the Father, Two years on, still unbroken, by George Weigel. Two years ago, Russian forces attempted a Hitlerian blitzkrieg into Ukraine. According to Russian dictator Vladimir Putin, its goal was to eradicate Ukraine, both the Ukrainian state and the Ukrainian nation, with its distinctive language and culture. The blitzkrieg failed thanks to an epic Ukrainian resistance defined by Homeric acts of valor and sustained by remarkable social solidarity. Thus, one irony of Putin's war, the Ukrainian nation is more united than ever, its steely resilience and will to prevail forged in a Russian blast furnace. The price paid by, the, by Ukraine is incalculable. No one knows exactly how many Ukrainian soldiers, reservists, volunteers, and civilians have died. The numbers are certainly in the hundreds of thousands. The Russian way of war, including wanton destruction of economic infrastructure, schools, hospitals, and cultural centers, has caused what is likely a trillion dollars worth of damage, even as Russian forces have made Ukraine the world's largest minefield, which will take decades to clear. As many as 14 million Ukrainians have become international refugees, or internally displaced persons, yet there are no refugee camps in Ukraine or in or its European neighbors, as those with homes have opened up to their fellow citizens or allies, as Archbishop Boris Gudziak of the Ukrainian Catholic Church put it recently, in the winter of 2022-23, when Putin damaged or destroyed 40% of Ukraine's electricity network, no one froze. People literally shared their warmth. Ukraine's churches have not been spared. Some 600 houses of worship have been damaged or destroyed in the past two years. Where Russian forces hold Ukrainian territory, religious freedom has been extinguished for Catholics, Protestants, Jews, Muslims, and those Ukrainian Orthodox who will not bend to the Russian Orthodox Patriarchate of Moscow whose leader, Patriarch Kirill, echoes the jihadist language of Sunni and Shia Islam in his blasphemous support for Putin's genocidal war. And yet, Ukraine remains unbroken. No one with a heart or soul could possibly watch a brief 90-second video of Ukrainian wounded in the war 
and not be moved to respect and admiration for such people. An eight-year-old boy with terrible facial burns taking dancing lessons, amputee children and adults, most with prosthesis, swimming, running, learning martial arts, holding their newborn children, all amidst a devastating war. Yet there are Americans, including lawmakers and one prominent presidential candidate, who continue to imagine somehow that there is a morally and politically acceptable outcome of this struggle that does not involve the defeat of Putin's de determination to reconstitute the Russian Empire, an ambition that does not stop at the borders of the late, unlamented Soviet Union. There are Americans who continue to swallow Russian propaganda, hook, line, and sinker, becoming, in effect, Putin's political enablers in the United States. The Russian war on Ukraine was preceded for years by a massive disinformation campaign using troll farms to flood the internet and social media with lies, among them that a murderous tyrant who assassinates domestic critics while causing mayhem outside Russia's borders is somehow a defender of Christian civilization. American vulnerability to Russian propaganda has a long, tawdry history dating back to John Reed's journalistic celebration of the Bolshevik Revolution and continuing with Walter Durante's New York Times cover-up of Stalin's deliberate starvation of millions of Ukrainians in the Holodomor of 1932-33. That trajectory of malfeasance has now reached a grotesque nadir, with Tucker Carlson playing the lickspittle, allowing Putin the prosperous claim that Poland had itself to blame for getting invaded by Hitler in 1939. The contemporary Russian propaganda barrage has had its effect on a, in a dysfunctional U.S. Congress. Ukraine's determination to survive, underwritten in blood, has degraded Russia's military, strengthened NATO, called Europe to its senses, and thereby made a significant contribution to the security of the United States, an immensely wealthy country in which $92 billion was spent betting on football, basketball, and baseball in 22-23. Politicians arguing that we cannot afford to support Ukraine militarily or who insist on linking military assistance to Ukraine to the resolution of their domestic policy grievances, either delusional, or unwilling to explain the geopolitical facts of life to their constituents. In either case, they might take a lesson from Arthur Vandenberg. Senator Vandenberg, a budget-balancing Republican fiscal conservative, opposed many New Deal and Fair Deal programs during the Roosevelt and Truman administrations. But when President Truman sought his support for the Marshall Plan and NATO, Vandenberg didn't demand in return the repeal of one of his bugbears, the National Labor Relations Act. Arthur Vandenberg was an adult. Would there, there were more of them in Congress today standing in solidarity with our unbroken Ukrainian friends and allies? Three ways to incorporate Ignatian spirituality into daily life by guest contributor 
Father Francis Therese Crowder. Ignatian spirituality, named after St. Ignatius of Loyola, the founder of the Society of Jesus Jesuits, is a rich treasure of the Catholic Church that offers profound insights and practical methods for deepening one's relationship with God in the context of everyday life. Its essence is captured in the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius' compilation of meditations, prayers, and contemplative practices developed to help people discern God's presence in their lives. For those navigating the complexities of modern life, Ignatian spirituality provides a pathway to discovering God's will and finding God in all things. Here, we explore three ways to incorporate Ignatian spirituality into daily life, aiming to foster a deeper spiritual awareness and a more intimate communion with God. The practice of examine. The examine is a cornerstone of Ignatian spirituality, a daily prayer for reflection on the events of the day to discern God's presence and direction. It encourages gratitude, recognizes God's grace in the minutiae of life, and helps identify areas of growth. The examine consists of five simple steps. Gratitude. Begin by thanking God for the blessings of the day, acknowledging his gifts with a heart full of gratitude. Petition. Ask the Holy Spirit to enlighten your heart and mind allowing you to see your day through God's eyes. Review. Reflect on the day from the moment you woke up to the present, noticing where you felt God's presence or were drawn away from Him. Forgiveness. Acknowledge your faults and ask for God's forgiveness. This step is not about dwelling on guilt, but about recognizing our need for God's mercy and grace. Renewal. Look forward to the next day with hope. Make a simple resolution in response to God's inviting love and grace experienced during your reflection. Incorporating the examine into daily life doesn't require a significant amount of time. It can be as brief as 15 minutes. What's important is the regular intentional practice of reflecting on one's life in the presence of God, fostering a deeper awareness of his workings in your daily activities, finding God in all things. St. Ignatius believed that God could be found in every aspect of our lives, not just in church or during prayer times, but also in our relationships, work, and leisure activities. This principle invites us to cultivate a sacramental view of the world where everything can reveal God's presence and love. To practice finding God in all things, start by being more present and attentive to your surroundings and interactions. Approach each moment and person with the belief that God is present there. This might mean seeing the dignity of God's creation in the beauty of nature recognizing his image to the people you meet. It might involve finding lessons and invitations to grow closer to God in the challenges and successes of your work. This approach to life transforms mundane activities into opportunities for encountering God 
making the whole world a place of prayer and communion with Him, it challenges us to break down the artificial barriers between the sacred and the secular, challenging us to set a relationship with God at the core of everything we do. Discernment of Spirits Ignatian discernment involves paying attention to the movements of the spirit in one's heart, distinguishing between what leads us closer to God, consolation, and what pulls us away from him, desolation. St. Ignatius provided rules or guidelines for discerning spirits, helping individuals make choices aligned with God's will. To incorporate discernment into daily life, St. Ignatius calls our attention to the three essential moments of discernment, becoming aware, understanding, and taking action. Leading a discerning life is first about paying more attention to our inward experiences, the inclination towards or away from God, prayer, and service can then be understood, rejecting the inclination of the enemy and accepting the inclination of the good spirit is the subject of the 14 rules of spiritual discernment. Practicing discernment requires prayer, patience, and occasionally the guidance of a spiritual director. It's about learning to listen deeply to the voice of God in our hearts and making decisions that reflect our deepest desires for love, truth, and goodness. Incorporating Ignatian spirituality into daily life is a journey toward a deeper relationship with God, grounded in the realities of our everyday experiences. Through practices like the examine, finding God in all things, and discernment of spirits, we open ourselves to the transformative power of God's grace, learning to see and respond to His presence in every moment of our lives. This spiritual path is a way of greater freedom, purpose, and joy, guiding by the loving hand of God, who desires nothing more than our ultimate happiness and union with Him. You're invited. St. Ignatius of Loyola Parish welcomes you to join us in ongoing formation in Ignatian spirituality. Currently, I, Father Francis Therese Crowder, I'm leading an, a 10-week series, meeting Mondays at 6.30 p.m. in the Parish Hall, on the rules of discernment of spirits. These talks aim to equip Christians with the tools to discern how to respond to ups and downs of the spiritual life. Whether you're familiar with Ignatian spirituality or new to its practices, this series is a good refresher and helpful introduction to the concrete application of the rules. Together we will explore how to recognize movements of both the good spirit and the enemy in our lives, understanding how to accept the good and reject the bad. Join us for a transformative experience of formation, spiritual growth, and community. True Covenant, True Happiness by Mary Beth Bonacci. It is Jesus that you seek when you dream of happiness. He's waiting for you when nothing else you find satisfies you. He is the beauty to which you are attracted. It is He who provokes you with that thirst for fullness that will not let you settle for compromise. It is He who urges you to shed the masks of a false life 
It is he who reads in your heart your most genuine choices, the choices that others try to stifle. The quote from St. John Paul II, Word of Youth Day, Rome, 2000. I don't know about other authors, but I rarely go back and reread my own books. I already knew what I said, but for some reason I found myself perusing the first chapter of my book, We're on a Mission from God, the other day, and it occurred to me that the message I wrote there bears repeating. That opening chapter was about our search for fulfillment, about how our lives seem to be a never-ending loop of finding something we think is going to finally make us really, truly happy. If I only had a spouse, a baby, that job, that car, that amount of money in the bank, then everything will finally be right in my world. And then attaining that thing, whatever it may be, and we find out that it does not. The world still doesn't feel right. The ache in the center of our hearts is still there. So we move on. The next thing, a bigger car, a different spouse. Surely that will finally bring fulfillment. And guess what? It doesn't. That emptiness is still there. Maybe we're not always aware of it. Maybe we try to stay busy so we can keep it at bay, but it has a way of popping up when we're sick, when we're afraid, when we're facing our own mortality, or sometimes just when we're awake in the wee small hours of the morning and all of the distractions have faded away. We feel like there has to be more. The reason for this is simple. We're not made to find our ultimate fulfillment in wealth or success or popularity or any of the temporary things of this earth. We were made to find true, deep, lasting fulfillment only in the union with God. As St. Augustine put it, our hearts were made for thee, O Lord, and will not rest until they rest in thee. Or as M.B. likes to put it, we have a God-shaped hole in the center of our hearts and nothing else quite fits in it. And to the extent that it is empty, that he is not filling it, we are not experiencing the fulfillment that we were made for, and we can sense it. He made us for himself, and nothing else truly satisfies. So what's the answer? Well, for those on the outside, the unchurched, it seems easy. Come on in. Discover Christ. He wants a relationship with you. It's what you were made for. He founded an entire church just to facilitate that relationship. All true. Please do. But what happens when we're ready on the inside? We've joined the club, been through the initiation, playing by all the rules, and yet we're still feeling empty. The God-shaped hole is not filled by membership. It's not filled by rule-following. Not that there are, those aren't essential elements, but there is more. I think we often tend to see our relationship with God as a contract. God agrees to some stuff, I'll agree to some stuff. I'll scratch your back, you scratch mine. I'll follow the rules, attend Mass, go through the motions. Then God will fill me with the peace that surpasses all understanding. But God sees it differently. He doesn't want a contract. A contract would only give him a little of us, and by extension give us a little of him. Why would he want that? He, he created us, gave us everything we have, and then he gave his entire self for us, 
on the cross. He doesn't want us, in exchange for that, to give him a few dribs and drabs of attention on Sunday morning and then to ignore him for the rest of the week. He wants us to give our entire selves to him in return. He created us for covenant. A covenant isn't just an exchange of something we have. It's a complete gift of ourselves. He wants all of us, every day, every moment, every decision. That's a little more difficult, isn't it? He founded an entire church to help us find that union. He gives us the Holy Spirit. He gives us the sacraments. He gives us his very body and blood so that he can dwell within us. But we need to do our part. We need to respond to the graces we are receiving. We need to bring him into every aspect of our lives. We need to be spending regular time communicating with him in prayer. After all, how can we, how can we give ourselves to him if we don't really know him? So, of course, he allows us to feel that emptiness when we begin to drift away from him. How else is he going to call us back into full covenant with himself? It may seem like I'm preaching to the choir. This is a Catholic newspaper, and you Catholics, serious enough about your faith to read it, have likely heard most of what I'm saying here. Covenant is not a one-and-done kind of arrangement. It is a lifelong process, and more. It's a process that extends into the next life. So when you're feeling that emptiness, take it as a sign, and then take it to him and ask him to help you get back on track. Do it over and over again. That is the best way I know to find the peace that surpasses all understanding. Thank you for joining us. My name is Chris Mahalik. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aftersight.org or by calling 303-786-7777.